Captured by Christ. What is the body of Christ? In Ephesians 5, 25-33 we read, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Marriage is not only a sealed covenant between two people. This ordinance is the earthly image of what our relationship with Christ is like in eternity. Eternity is not a period of time that's endless. Eternity is the true reality. We are not inside of that true reality. As much as it may feel like it, we're simply within God's foreordained prophecy being revealed all throughout till the end which we know this because he gives us the beginning through the ending God gave a covenant in the Old Testament between himself and his people a holy righteous perfect God in promise with or in covenant if you will with an unholy unequal and unrighteous group of people before God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, before he ever spoke to Abraham, before he ever spoke to Noah, he spoke to Cain and Abel. We read in Genesis 4, 3-8, and I quote, And the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought up the fruit of the ground, an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had no respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why are you wroth, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and shall rule over him, and you shall rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and slew him, meaning murder him. I mention this for a simple reason, and I've said this before, God can only be satisfied by God. I need you to understand that there was no law during this time, and no mention of the Lord commanding these men to atone for their iniquities. 
Because if he indeed did so, more than likely both men would have brought the same sacrifice for the same individual purpose. Meaning, if if God indeed told Cain and Abel what to bring and why they should bring it, then the both of them would have no other reason than to do so or to not do it at all. So Cain and Abel were both faced with a certain desire to please their creator nonetheless. And Cain was a producer of crops, but Abel was a protector of sheep. But notice what each person offered. Cain did the same type of work he always had done and put his best effort on the altar. If you will, he put his life's work on the altar. I dare ask you, reader, if you're a protector of sheep, which would be Abel's case, why in the world would you literally go against your entire way of life, your entire career, and sacrifice one of the sheep that you are protecting to God? You see, Abel did not try to escape his situation, nor did he even ask his brother for his crops to use. He loved the Lord more than his own life. His whole life was centered around protecting his flock. The sheep, despite their inabilities, understood his voice. They understood that no matter what, that their shepherd would be there to lead them in the right direction. And most importantly, they felt loved by Abel. The crops couldn't listen to Cain. No matter what Cain had to say out in the field each day, the crops could not listen. Repentance cannot be earned through atonement. It can only be received by the grace of God. Abel received unmerited grace, and Cain did not receive grace, despite his physical merit. God did not tell Cain that all he needed to do was sacrifice a firstborn lamb because that's not even the reason why he accepted Abel's sacrifice in the first place. God's reason for loving Abel was different to Cain's mind, obviously, than the Lord's. And as we can see, it led Cain to jealousy and murder. Just like in Abel's situation, we cannot lay down our own life on the altar and expect God to accept it. On top of this, Common sense should tell you that that's called suicide. So, how are you even going to know until it's all over? That's the point. Abel repented of his life and gave a clean sacrifice to atone for it. Repentance and atonement seem to be the same thing for us today as Christians. However, they are two totally different things in reality. When we repent, we are feeling something, sorrow, guilt, grief over our sins. And atonement is an action. You have to move to atone. It's not an emotion or a desire that comes to you. The action comes as a result 
of the repentance. The firstborn Cain did not receive what his younger sibling received from the Lord. You also see this all throughout the scriptures. With Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael, Joseph and all of his brothers. Same thing. The firstborn shall serve the younger. I brought this to your attention because the first covenant was exactly like the scenario with Cain. You know, the Hebrews had prominence in Egypt prior to their captivity there. And it was not only because of Joseph, as you'll see in the last few chapters of Genesis, but also because Egypt was actually one of Noah's grandsons. His real name is Mizraim. Each one of his grandsons, which come from one of his four sons, started all nations. So we must understand when you're looking at the Egyptians and the Hebrews, you're simply looking at humans. There's nothing different about any of them. They're human beings. And both of them are derived from the eight persons, survivors of the Great Flood, which we'll get into in a moment. You know, um, before circumcision was used as the earthly representation of sanctification, meaning setting yourself apart from humanity, there was no difference. A human is a human. Where this whole system of race, the whole class system, whether it be by finances or by your skin color or by your intellect, it's garbage. It's not true. It's all based on a lie. All human beings are ultimately derived from the eight survivors of the Great Flood and ultimately Adam. The New Covenant is for us, but we must understand this point first. Remember, the Old Covenant was between his people and himself. What did his people always prove themselves to be? A whore. Meaning, although in marriage, they committed adultery. God does not commit adultery. So we must understand this point first with the New Covenant. The New Covenant is actually a covenant between God and Himself. But it's in the form of being between Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Father. If we are in Christ Jesus, then this covenant is for us specifically. So even though you're seeing the Father and the Son having covenant with each other, by us being in the Son, by being in Christ, 
it goes back to the original attention. The covenant is for us. And we'll get into that a little bit more. We read in Jeremiah 32, 35-42, the Lord's words, And now therefore thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, whereof you say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, famine, pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, where I have driven them in my anger, my fury, and in my wrath. And I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and of the children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me. Yeah, I will rejoice over them to to do good to them. And I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my own soul. For thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. Notice the language here about the horror that is about to come upon the city of Jerusalem. But he claims that those of the city will be gathered from all nations where he has placed them prior. Remember what I said earlier. The Egyptians and the Hebrews, there's no difference between them. Okay, nations are groups of people. As we saw earlier, Egypt, Mizraim started the nation of Egypt as the grandson of Noah. Canaan was also a grandson of Noah, in which Canaan would later be conquered for the Israelites regarding it as the promised land of Israel. Some cities, even today, are individual nations in themselves. Vatican City, for example. The original city of London, which is only 1.1 square miles compared to the city of London we know of today. And even the District of Columbia are actual nations set apart from the nation they are geographically a part of. Jerusalem is supposed to be a city-state, such as the ones mentioned. But which one? I ask which one because you are told about two different ones, and we're going to see this right now. As we see in Galatians four nineteen through 26 my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, and he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar, 
for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. The Jerusalem on earth today is the whore of Babylon, who will be made desolate by the beast, according to the book of Revelation. Simply put, the Jerusalem you see with your own physical eyes today is not God's holy city. To put it even more bluntly, the earthly Jerusalem that you see today with your own eyes is within the Zionist state of Israel. But the true heavenly Jerusalem will have Israel within it. Remember, nations are groups of people. We are Israel by being the body of Christ. Not all of Israel is of Israel, as said by Paul in Romans. I believe it was Romans 11. He is referring to two different groups called by the same name. And we'll see this more in just a second. The first group is the ones who physically set themselves apart by circumcision and called themselves Israelites. The second group is the true Israel of the heavenly Jerusalem. What is this group's name? The body of Christ. Only those in Christ are true Jews. And this is confirmed not only in Galatians 3, which I've gone over several times, but also in Revelation 2 and 3. You only have a position in life within the body of Jesus the Christ or the synagogue of Satan, the Antichrist. I have to bring this to our attention because if we do not, we are defying the very scriptures that we claim to uphold and when we start to say that people residing in Israel today are or will be chosen by the very Christ that they claimed, or excuse me, by the very Christ that claimed himself that their father is the devil. We are just compromising with the enemy of Christ himself. Understand, the husband loves his own body. I'm going to repeat that. The husband, Jesus, loves his own body the body of Christ. I would like for you to ponder for a second. Again, Jesus is the bridegroom and his body is his bride. I dare ask, how many places or people in your lifetime who claim they've read God's word up and down and are confident in their current belief system actually has explained this to you or I or even to themselves. Do the leaders in your own church even understand this? In marriage, you become one with your spouse. Let's ponder on the pondering for a minute. Jesus is the groom. The body of Christ is his bride. I dare ask if they become one with each other 
Who do you have? Who do you see? You must know his name, don't you? You see, Jesus is the head of his own body. According to his own words, we receive him fully in spirit and truth. And we must be in spirit and truth as well, because he has graciously helped us to realize that we are only a vessel here on earth for his works to dwell through. We receive everything Christ Jesus possesses, which is all things in heaven and in earth. When we say individually, it is God's will for us to have salvation, which is his action. It can't be earned. What is the name of our God who gives us this? We know his name, don't we? Hebrews 9.11-22 states clearly, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your, con purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hispus, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament, the covenant, which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. It's Christ Jesus' will, guys. You may hear of the doctrine of the two wills. <clears throat> There's no such thing. There's absolutely no such thing. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. You know, you can only go up this pyramid so high until you hit the peak. Because that's where you end up. You end up with the one body. 
Okay, imagine it like this. You have all of us going up to the Godhead. Who are we going to see? Okay, if the Father is supreme over the Son, but the Son is given all things from the Father, if they are becoming one with each other, if they are eternally one with each other, then it's by His testimony that you are saved. Because your own testimony will only, after your death, lead you to a condemnation so cruel that all those who are given unto it will seek to die, but will not receive it. You know, some of us are scared to die. According to Christ, it's a grace. Understand that. Don't take life for granted. Especially your eternal life. For we are Christ's workmanship. I want you to ponder on that. We're told about how we are the clay and God is the potter. What do you think Christ's workmanship means? You know, it's really sad that people don't want to accept the reality that Christ Jesus is the potter. He is your potter. He is the creator of all things. Who created Jesus? Nobody. He was never created. He's eternally existent. The Like I said before, the ball game's been over. Before you ever bought a ticket, it's over. Christ Jesus is God alone. This is not hard. And we must be within him. And he must be within us. In order to have any chance. Because there is no such thing as chance with God. To have God. According to Colossians 1, 15-22, we read, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? I'm going to repeat that. If I may. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. If you go look in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke, you'll see two genealogies given. Do you know who starts each genealogy? The Son of God. Amen. He is the one that started all this, and he will be the one to end it and renew it unto eternity.
And I continue in Colossians 1, For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, excuse me, <clears throat> visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created by him. I love the reiteration here. And for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. We in ourselves, again, we cannot lay down our own life on the altar to satisfy God. We are not holy. We are not unblameable, nor are we unreprovable in his sight. There is one, however, that is. Jesus Christ is the one individual that is holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in the sight of God. We are so loved by Jesus that he laid down his own eternal life on our altar of atonement. His blood spilt on our altar. Did he defile it? By no means. Because of this, every quality that Christ Jesus possesses is also every gift we receive from him. We receive his grace. We receive his love. We receive his sanctification. We receive his repentance. We receive his fear. We receive his justification. We receive his wounds. We receive his sufferings. We receive his flesh. We receive his bones. We receive his meekness. We receive his kindness. We receive his patience. We receive his self-control. We receive his mind. We receive his good works. We receive his death. We receive his spirit, which is himself. We receive his salvation. And the most important gift we receive is Christ Jesus' eternal life. These are the things we must receive in order to be properly called a child of God. Remember, we are vessels of honorable use. Which means, if you are a vessel, you are either empty or full. And just like there's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian, there is no such thing to God as a half-full vessel. You are either empty or full of Jesus Christ. The living Christ resides in his body, member by member. 
we all receive these gifts as a true member of his body. If it helps you, think about it like this. Members of his body. No matter what what area you are inside of his body, his blood flows through you consistently. You are never in need of nourishment. You're never in need, period. We complicate this. And we allow people who are fools and haters of Jesus Christ trick us into believing that something else or someone else is more important than Jesus Christ, including yourself. That goes for me as well. We cannot earn any of these gifts. All these things are Christ Jesus's that he will either give to you or not. And we have just as much control over that as we did in trying to stop Christ from going to the cross. It's by his grace alone that we are loved unconditionally by him. And it's by his wisdom that we know the wonderful truth that is reserved for his children to embrace alone, which is the Lord Jesus Christ is the one without a beginning, without an ending, without a mother, and without a father. But is Jesus Christ without a son? No. He will reveal to all the people who have mocked him, who have hated him, who have a problem with him, but most importantly, to us, that indeed, you do not have the Father without the Son. If you notice, in a way, you cannot have that sentence reversed. We must be a vessel for Christ Jesus' honorable use. We are not honorable, and we must die to the want of being accepted for our merits and beliefs and instead cling and become one with our spouse, the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be captured by Christ, or we will stay captive to the devil. I am so glad that Jesus has made it plain that the devil had something of his, and he took it back. You want to know what that was? His body. Three days after he died, he took back that body. Praise be the Lord Jesus Christ, that eternal life is ours forever and ever. And all those in his great and awesome name say, Amen. And that Amen's name, according to the book of Revelation, is Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing I want to end with, to put it very simply, because it's an irrefutable point. You have the Old Testament 
you have the Gospels and you have the New Testament. If you could sum up the entirety of Scripture, you have the Lord, the Old Testament. You have the Christ, the New Testament. And you have Jesus being the revelation of both titles in the Gospels. The Lord Jesus Christ. I am captured by Christ. God blessed.